Today's episode of the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast is sponsored in part by the Bent Paddle Brewing Company. This Minnesota original is a 30-barrel production craft brewery and public taproom located in Duluth, just down the shore from the Boundary Waters. Hi, I'm Laura Mullen, co-founder of Bent Paddle Brewing Company. Bent Paddle makes quality craft beer using Lake Superior water. Our mission is to brew craft beer with a concentration on sustainability for our business, employees, and the environment. On your way up to the BWCA, come experience Bent Paddle's new taproom in Duluth's emerging Lincoln Park Craft District, where you can grab a stainless steel growler of our award-winning beer to go for your camping trip. Or find Bent Paddle beer at over 2,000 local restaurants, bars, and liquor stores throughout Minnesota. Allow Bent Paddle to be the bridge that keeps good memories and conversation flowing when you're reflecting on that perfect campsite or the splendidness of the northern lights. For more information, visit bentpaddlebrewing.com or call 218-279-2722. Bent Paddle Brewing Company is proud to support the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness and this podcast. This is the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experiences were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters and it's, it was really cool, it was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars, I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue come the northern lights. Oh, and in the deep dark blue Welcome to episode 26 of the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Lloyd. And I'm Joe Fredericks. Great to see you, Joe Fredericks. (laughs) (laughs) Chelsea, nice to see you here in the winter. Been spending some time together this winter doing podcast-related activities, uh, some fishing that we really actually haven't included in the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast, our fishing adventure following the Gunflint Mail Run from, from January. We were teamed up with another North Shore podcast, Cook County, Northern Minnesota podcast, exploring the North Shore. So uh, we went out fishing and had some success. Yeah. That that was quite a day looking back on our... Really? We had a chock full day. (laughs) (laughs) So we did our live broadcast, uh, which was a lot of fun. The first time that we had ever done one live and uh, because it was... You know, live on the radio here at WTIP, the community radio station in Grand Marais, where we produce the podcast, where we're based out of. Uh, we never really had a moment to reflect on the significance of season three and just this live episode and all these things we have lined up for 2020. So uh, we're just glad everyone's following this journey with us because we are having so much fun. Yeah, it is super fun. I don't know. It's so special for me because I listened to every episode so thoroughly, really enjoyed it. And now I get to be a part of season three. Wow. Kind of pinching myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right on. Well, we have uh, a great episode lined up for today. Episode 26, as you said, Chelsea, uh, we're going to hear from some voices we've heard from on a previous episode, the father-daughter duo, as we said on episode 16. Uh, Their names are Scott and Emily Burdett. Uh, We met them, Matthew and I met them at Canucopia last year, and they produced uh, an awesome episode for episode 16. Matthew interviewed them about their relationship as a father and daughter and their journey to Quetico, their at least usually annual trip that they have done since Emily was really young. And now she's, uh, you know, getting out of college in that age and and getting into the real world, if you will, Chelsea. And uh, they still, you know, make it a point to do this trip. Uh, to Quetico. And so this year, uh, they went in 2019, they took a recording device with them specifically for the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast and recorded the Death March Portage, Portage, because Quetico, <laughs> it's in Quetico. <laughs> uh, across the, from some lakes. So they recorded that actually in Quetico. In the portage. Yeah. While they're portaging. Exactly. And Matthew will help us narrate 
through that, through their journey. Matthew Baxley, of course, from the podcast here. So it's a really gripping tale. I mean, it is like the raw, dirty, here's what this experience is like. <laughs> In the field. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's great. So uh, we look forward to that up first here on today's episode. And then we also hear from a, a gentleman who likes to largely remain behind the scenes. It almost goes with the details of his job, which works perfectly for him. His name's Jeff Nemitz. He is one of the original people uh, with WTIP. He was there from day one. He literally, they like to say uh, about Jeff, he flipped the switch. Like He, he is... turned the, it turned the radio <laughs> yeah. on. Yes. In 1998, <laughs> when the station started, uh, he was there. He's the engineer for the radio station in Grand Marais, WTIP. And uh, he was up at the mail run. He set up all... The equipment for us had everything running. Which, so. how impressive was that? Exactly. On a, you know, 20 below zero with his wires crunching. and Literally. Yeah. So, so uh, a lot of what we do here at the station, the sound is uh, because of Jeff. So uh, we, you know, want to talk to him about that. But most specifically, we really want to talk to him about this Polk sled that he engineered i mean his brain works he's an engineer for the radio but he also is building things and tinkering with stuff all the time you know around his house so he built a polk sled for us for jeff and i now have one that we use on boundary waters trips and in fact you and i saw it in action when we did our trip to uh duncan on after the mail run and so having seen that sled and comparing it to the sled i was pulling some of the trip Man, you were cruising, Joe. That seems like it was very effective. Maybe we should start a Kickstarter campaign or something. The Nemitz Polk. Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) Because it's highly effective. I mean, it's used with like scrap material. That's what's so awesome about Jeff is he just kind of utilizes what's available. We ordered some of the parts, you know, but uh, he, he largely just put it together by the design in his own brain. And it worked great. And it was exactly like the sled you had. The one that I was pulling on this trip has that rope that you and your sister and your friend uh, were pulling as well. Yeah. Uh, but Jeff took that and, and built it into a polk sled. Right. Well, so, I don't want to give too much away about yeah, it before yeah. the episode. <laughs> yeah, but. exactly. We'll let Jeff describe uh, as he does. He he will share with us exactly how he built it and how he came up with the plan. So uh, hopefully maybe somebody could, you know, learn how to do it as well because I highly recommend it having been a rope puller of a sled here in the Boundary Waters. So it's a full episode, Chelsea. Uh, we've got all kinds of things that we're going to talk about throughout the episode regarding Canoe Copia that's coming up and some of our travels here. So uh, with that in mind, let's hop back in to an adventure with Scott and Emily Burdett as they do the Death March Portage with Mr. Matthew Baxley uh, narrating the way through the story. So let's jump right in. Excited to hear. We've officially entered, I think, brutal territory, I'd call it. We've been going four miles according to our GPS. This portage has earned its name. Ah. I see water. Oh, man. Water, beautiful water. We are the survivors of Death March Portage! We beat death. If those voices sound familiar, it's because they belong to Scott and Emily Burdett. They were featured in an earlier episode of the podcast talking about their shared history of Boundary Waters and Quetico travel as a father-daughter duo. Their recent trek across the Death March portage got us thinking, what motivates people to go into the wilderness? Is it the peace and quiet, the tranquil beauty? Is it battling the weather and the elements, no matter what it gives you, because you have to get to your destination? Well, all these questions, we're going to explore a little bit more as Emily and Scott make their voyage across the Death March to end their trip on the north side of Quetico Provincial Park. But let's start the story from the beginning. Scott and his daughter Emily 
started their trip with a fly-in to Lac La Croix on the southwest side of Quetico, starting in the BWCA, with the plan to paddle north, exiting at Bachuang Lake for pickup on Nim Lake. All in all, the trip totaled approximately 85 miles. Let's join Scott as he recalls the fly-in and starting the trip. We got down, it was a really nice flight, just picturesque. Heaven was below us. We only saw maybe three parties of people. It's pretty easy to see the lakes from up there. There just wasn't anybody out there, which is a really great feeling. We got down near the southwest end of the park and our pilot banked and turned twice, changing direction. He looked like he was looking for the landing spot. He found that and we landed. It was really a cool experience to load our canoe from the float plane. It's really disorienting when you land on a lake and you haven't paddled into it and now you're looking for where you're supposed to paddle off to. It's not impossible to figure out by any means, but it's not automatic. He took off, went past us, turned around, and then came back over us. We hooped and hollered, and then we headed for our portage, ready to start our trip. There's nothing like watching a float plane fly off on your first day. When listening to Scott reflect on the beginning of his trip, it's easy to see that the majesty of the wilderness is already a motivation for him to go into Quetico. Talks about heaven below, and it doesn't get much better than that. But Scott and Emily didn't go into Quetico simply for the beauty. They went for the death march and for the challenge and the sense of victory that that would give them. So let's jump four days ahead to day five of their trip and join them at the beginning of the death march. Yeah, it's day five. We're at the start of death march portage. I was getting excited coming down Conmee thinking about it. It is the reason we planned this route and flew down to the southwest of the park. Not sure how long it's going to take us to cross. We're thinking maybe three hours. It's just before noon right now. We haven't eaten much. Got up at six, broke camp pretty early after that. Just had some granola and coffee and headed out. All right, we're going to unpack here and uh, have something to eat. And uh, we'll find out what this portage is all about. Well, <laughs> we're about to start uh, Death March Portage. We did the first 13 Rad Portage, uh, which sort of counts in Death March, but this is the real deal now. Now we're doing one trip. We've got a little under half a mile for the first portage. I'm all geared up, one pack on the front, one pack on the back, two pals in hand, and then a fishing kit in my left hand. And uh, we'll see how this goes. We've got some bug spray on us, which is good because there's not much room for swatting mosquitoes away. We've got the mosquito head net, our hats on. I've got a headband thing that's covering my forehead from mosquitoes. And uh, we'll see how this goes. Right now I've got some energy. Just ate an energy bar, but we'll see what we feel like at the end of this. And then especially at the end of the whole death march. It's clear to me that anticipation is a huge part of every trip. That moment where you get pumped up for what's ahead, especially if what's ahead may be a challenge. That excitement, the adrenaline that comes, you can hear it in Emily's voice. But then this other element pops up relatively quickly, and some people like it. It's an unforeseen challenge, something unexpected, something you have to figure out to problem solve. That is appealing to many of us. Well, that was a little disconcerting. We went to the first leg, which was, according to the map, 
about four tenths of a mile. It was one tenth, and we hit water. We do know, according to the map, that the portage dips down toward water, but you're not supposed to be fooled and take it. You need to stay on the path. But there was no other option back there, so we got back in the water, and that dead-ended at three beaver dams. So we climbed over one, went the rest of the way, in the water that we could see. And then we got to a landing that's clearly a path here, so we think we're back on the portage. Well, one-tenth of a mile was pretty easy, very narrow. And that meant the canoe was scraping branches the entire walk. The thought crossed my mind that if Emily called my name out, that I might not hear her. When I got to the other end of the path, she wasn't there. I walked back almost the whole way. Her pack, the way we set it up, had come undone. And she's carrying two packs, one on the front, one on the back, very heavy packs, and things hanging off the packs. And it takes two people, really, one to help get it on and the other to carry it so once those things fell off she couldn't get it back on herself fortunately the path was only a tenth of a mile otherwise I'd have been way down the ways before we ever stopped to turn around we're going to start going back to what we usually do which is I call out you still there <laughs> every once in a while On to the next leg. I'm walking through right now, carrying the canoe and a pretty heavy pack. Got a lot of stuff strapped in the canoe. Really narrow path. A couple of places back there just sort of disappeared in the underbrush, pretty thick. Did see some cut logs, so. And the path is pretty defined now, so we know we're going. Well, we know we're not walking, wandering off into the woods somewhere, I'll tell you that. Or maybe we are. Just with a destination in mind. I think it's worth stopping for a moment and remembering that navigating in the wilderness can be tricky, whether you're a beginner or you've been going for years. It may be tricky when you're first learning how to read the map and use a compass and find your way to these ambiguous portage trails that are totally lost when you scan a shoreline, but in time you learn how to find them. Navigating portages, especially in the center of Quetico, can be the exact same way. As confident as you may feel, still in the back of your mind can be this reality that I may be walking in the wrong direction, but it's that motivation towards that destination that can drive you forward. I just waded through two little creeks. I'm stopping here. There's a tree across the path. Stepped in some muck. Emily thought, Emily saw a paw in the mud. She said it was clearly either it was a print, a hoof, uh, like a canine print. So maybe a dog or a wolf, she wasn't sure. I got to put this canoe down and figure out how I'm going to get past this tree. We just finished the second and the toughest leg of Death March. I guess technically the third, but it was the toughest. We're going into the last leg. It's not going to be easy, but it's only at the most maybe two-thirds the distance of what we just came through. I'll let you guys do the math, but I'll tell you what. The satellite GPS says we've covered 3.3 miles. And I suspect we have 
about a mile to go. I'm not sure, but we will let you know. A little bit of that 3.3 miles was across some water, but most of it was across land. All right, we're getting back in the canoe and going at this. In one of Scott's first emails he sent me, where he started, in just a few weeks, Emily and I embark on our wilderness camping trip, and we've given ourselves a challenge, Death March Portage. And at the end, before signing off, he said, for now, I'm off to the health club for leg day, part of my preparation for the trip. It's clear that Scott has been training for this trip and that he's a strong mind and a strong body. But even he, as he works his way across the death march, sounds like he's getting tired. And who would blame him? It is called the death march. We've officially entered, I think, brutal territory, I'd call it. Just because so much walking, not a clean portage at all, makes it difficult. It's very narrow. My canoe keeps sliding off my shoulders and I'm carrying a heavy pack. And We've been going four miles according to our GPS. I don't think we have too much longer to go, but anything from here on out is hard. Every 10 yards, 20 yards is kind of tough. We're down in a bog right now. Canoe slid off my shoulders again. So I had to take a break. Emily really can't take a break because she's got a pack on the front and the back. You really can't sit down. She can only lie down. Relax, you get back up. Then it's too hard to get up. All right, well, here we go. Most of us know that feeling. You know the one. When you get close to the end of a portage, and your body hurts, and you're breathing hard, and you just can't imagine making it any further, and you start to look desperately for any sign of that lake, of an opening, of water that may await you so that your pain and your misery can be over. We've all been there. Scott and Emily are also there. I see water. Oh man. Water, beautiful water. Come down a pretty steep hill. Up a steep hill to start, down a steep hill to finish. This portage has earned its name. You can hear all those tree branches. It's tight through here. Just about there. Oh my gosh. I'm here. Made it. That was close to deadly. Oh. So, uh, hey. I am happy to see you. Lay down yet. I still need your help. Okay. Bend down. Emily bent down to pick up a fishing lure that busted off the line. Got these babies tied up in the canoe, but so many branches. Garment busted off earlier. Man. All right, we're pack free. Lost this lure. Oh man, oh man. I'm ready to walk into that water, fully clothed. We are the survivors of Death March Portage 2019! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh my gosh. I seriously could just, like, legit just walk in right now, fully clothed like you said.
we beat death. Almost got the blood sucked out of us. Still happening, but... And we don't care. (laughs) You're so sweaty that when a mosquito lands on you, if you just nudge it, it, like, drowns in your sweat. Like, its body just, like, cripples up in the sweat. Well... No rest for the weary. We got another portage. Oh yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> First, we're going to the island to see if there's a bottle there with notes inside it from people that have crossed this bad boy. Monster. And then maybe, I don't know, swim or not. Maybe we'll just push on. We only have a little bit of ways to go to get into Varan, so... We'll uh, give you an update. That was one crazy hike, or I guess four crazy hikes, uh, mashed into one. The last two were definitely the hardest. Dodge just said 4.4 miles in total, um, and that does include a little bit of water, but just a tiny, tiny bit. Oh, and five hours, he adds. Um, It was definitely a trek. I think after the, technically the third portage, I was, that was the longest one. And I was just completely beat, like absolutely exhausted. And I was really hoping for a bit more water um, so that my shoulders could take a break. Um, and my back, too. Heading into that last, last part, part four of the death march was really, really hard. I was really tired and did not want to keep going. Um, but it's kind of like once you start it, you get this extra burst of energy almost. And it's like, you know you can't stop. Like, you absolutely can't stop. Um, you can't even stop in the middle of Death March Portage. There's no, there aren't any campsites. Um, you have to do it in one go, one day. Yeah, the last one was hard and it was narrow. I was walking sideways basically the whole time because I couldn't see anything in front of me. So I'd be uh, like tripping over stones and rocks and stepping into bogs. So yeah, definitely a challenge. Um, but when I finished, I almost felt more energized, and I think part of that was the, well, I did feel more energized, and I think part of that was the adrenaline um, of just knowing that I was done, but also you kind of get into a zone when you're in it, um, where you just can't stop, because I, I feel like the more you stop, almost the harder it gets, and so you definitely get a burst of energy there, but now we're done, we're going to drink heaps of water, uh, and then go check out that bottle like we mentioned. So, we'll be back. Scott and Emily have allowed us the ability to travel along with them into Quetico, across the Death March, and to really have a sense of being right along with them as they encounter the challenges, the trials, the problems that they had to solve. They also gave us another special gift, In the solitude of their trip, they offered us their individual reflections of what motivates them to go into the wilderness and what motivated them to do the death march. So let's skip ahead and hear what they have to say. It's day eight, and the reason why I choose to do death march is definitely because of the challenge. I think there's, I mean, obviously there are a bunch of different ways that you could do this kind of camping trip. Um, You could be staying two, three nights in one place. You could focus it more on fishing than anything else. You could focus it on trying to hit up nice beaches, that kind of thing. But for us, we're moving a lot. And although we do like to maybe spend a couple, two, two nighters during a trip, um... We definitely, we, we get far, and we like to take up challenges. And I think the reason that I really like to take up challenges like Death March is because of the reward um, that follows. 
I think after a really long day of paddling, it's much more rewarding to sit down with your meal and not be working every single muscle in your body like you were for the whole day. Um, and be able to, to just sit down and relax or to go swimming and the water just somehow feels so much better after you've worked so hard the whole day and you've been sweating and there's dirt in like every single crevice of your fingernails and your hands and feet and everything and you just get into that water and you feel so clean and it feels so cool and the reward that follows after a challenge and um part of that reward is also just knowing that you did it I don't know if this is like a good thing to feel like but I definitely feel like a different person when I'm out here compared to when I'm back home in Wisconsin in the states um, and I think part of that is what I'm challenging myself to do and what I see myself doing so when I'm out here I'm testing skills of mine that are completely different um, like how far I can physically push my body or how I can mentally convince myself to do death march even after the third part of it and you know there's one part that's a little over two-thirds of the hardest part that you just finished um, and you have to do it basically almost all over again how you can mentally convince yourself to do that too so I'm challenging myself in different ways that than I do back home and so for me I, I love to just see what I'm capable of you know these aren't skills that I necessarily had to learn like it's just like what your body is able to do and you get to kind of see that um, as you go on hikes like this and so for me I think just going back to what I first started saying with the challenge and reward part of that reward is like the physical reward of having a swim afterward or having a nice meal afterward that just feels like you earned it um but then also knowing that you can do this because you don't get to test yourself on these kind of things when you have a job that's completely different from anything like this so that's definitely why i i like doing these kind of uh these kind of hikes a day eight where a few days removed from having done the death march portage which was the focal point of our trip it was the reason we took the route that we did and i've thought on and on on off and on about why we chose to to do that that it's not like it's a lot of fun it's a lot of hard work and the scenery is just really deep thick woods not a lot to see narrow path branches everywhere swamps streams to cross and muck to tiptoe through mosquitoes to swat It took us five hours to get through there. I haven't come up with a... I guess a very strong reason for why. I think it's... I have a reason why. We like to go where nobody else is likely to go. When we got out onto Delahaye, the lake... On the other side of Death March, when you enter on Conmi, we didn't see anybody. We did stop at an area where it looked like people had camped before, and it looked like nobody had been there in years and years. We went through Varan, where we camped. And the site that we stayed at, a point on an island, somebody had camped there before, but that looked like it might have been decades ago. <laughs> and I'm sure there are other people that passed through probably this month, but not many. And, of course, we didn't see any. And I think that's the lure is getting away to a place where you know nobody else is. 
Nobody else is on that lake. Nobody else is in front of you. Nobody else is behind you. There's something about that feeling. That I particularly enjoy. That's why I come up here. And then there is the challenge to say that we've done it. We've done two of the toughest ones in the park now. And for me, my thing is, I'm going to look at where the next tough one is. We hear that Eat 'em Up is the name of a portage that's not easy at all. We'll look at that one for a future year. I think that's it, simply. Looking for a challenge. Looking to know and feel like you're all alone. As I hear these reflections from both Emily and Scott, it's easy for me to note that there are a lot of similarity. They are both driven towards a challenge. They both are out to push themselves hard. And I can't help but notice some differences. Different motivations to connect with both themselves and the wilderness. Different things to prove and different things to find along the way. I also wonder what Scott would have said years ago when he was Emily's age about what motivated him. And what will Emily say as she grows and develops into a phase of life similar to her father? How will her motivations change over time? One thing we all love about the wilderness is that ideally, it does not change. Every time we return, it's still preserved in the way that it's supposed to be. But what does change every time are the people. Every experience, every time we return, we are different. And the wilderness shows us that. For that, Along with Scott and Emily's reporting, I am very grateful. All right. An amazing adventure. Scott and Emily Burdett. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to meet them at Canoe Copia and hopefully check out their, their talk. Yeah, for sure. We will do that. Uh, that's, as I said at the top of the show, where we met them last year was Canoe Copia, and they're uh, scheduled to be presenters again here at the 2020 event, which we will also be at Chelsea. Uh, before we hop into that, let's take a moment to thank one of our sponsors for today's program, somebody you're familiar with, somebody who helped us get to Canoe Copia. Uh, last year and this year, but is uh, sponsoring this episode, Tuscarora Lodge and Canoe Outfitters up the Gunflint Trail. Wow, what a wonderful place. I highly recommend if anyone is uh, thinking about open water season, and I would definitely recommend Tuscarora. Man, it is just a wonderful place. There are so many like really old white pines on the property, and Round Lake is just a great spot to to hang out. There's there's kind of a little trail that goes back into uh, we affectionately called it BA Point because it's a great place to hide out and go skinny dipping and jump in the water. So great nice. place to launch your canoe canoe adventure. Yeah, cool. And another thing that I really appreciate uh, Tuscarora is. I've gotten to know Andy from up there now, Andy and Ada, who are the owners of Tuscarora now, uh, and talked to him about ice fishing. Andy, they go ice fishing a lot up near there, yeah. uh, Sag, and just the areas near the end of the Gunflint. And Andy has, uh, I interviewed him for the Boundary Waters Journal winter issue of 2019-2020, and he was so helpful and informative about ice fishing. And they do rent some cabins there at Tuscarora. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the winter, and largely for people who go ice fishing, and they're getting really interactive with their videos about, you know, here's the conditions of the ice. Yeah. Here's, you know, what we've been doing to catch fish, lake trout uh, most notably. And uh, they do some crappie fishing up there too in the early season. So they're just a wealth of information. They have a really awesome blog too. Yeah. 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 They, they're really incorporating, you know, social media video um it's they've they've embraced kind of the modern times but it still has that 
Gunflint, Boundary Waters, original Authentic feel. feel, way yeah. up the trail feel. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So they're based on Round Lake. Tuscarora serves all Gunflint Trail Boundary Waters entry points. Uh, they have canoe rentals, bunkhouses, six lakeside housekeeping cabins, and a message from Ada and Andy for the episode today. They wanted our listeners here on the podcast to know that they are now hiring for the summer season. 2020 summer season. So Tuscarora invites outdoor-minded individuals to apply for the 2020 crew. can enjoy a fun, fast-paced summer with a Boundary Waters backyard. More information at TuscaroraCanoe.com. So Tuscarora Lodge, uh, thanks for your sponsorship and helping us get to Canoe Copia as well, uh, both last year and this year. And uh, Canoe Copia is also uh, somebody we want to give a shout out to. They are really supportive of us getting to the event, being at the event. We heard from Darren Bush, uh, Matthew Baxi talked to him at the end of uh, last season, season two. And they just are really supportive of us being there as uh, the radio station, but most specifically um, for the Boundary Waters podcast. So shout out to Canoe Copia. We're so excited to get back in 2020. Heck yeah. I'm so excited to be there. This will actually be my first canoe copia. So. Matthew and I were really blown away last year. Just to <laughs> not, not hype you out too much, but that Friday night, kind of the opening night, we were mm-hmm. you know, kind of mentally and, and perhaps physically prepared for easing into the situation, sure. easing into the water. Kind of like if you're going to start your canoe trip with a real easy paddle and portage and base camp on night one. Uh, instead it was more like the, uh, death march portage. (laughs) We were like, what? There were so many people and so many, uh, great people wanting to talk and engage and we loved every second of it. But then afterward that Friday night, Matthew Baxley and I were back at the hotel room and we, we sat down in the chair. It's like maybe 1030 at night or something. We're (laughs) like, what just happened? (laughs) Oh my gosh. blown away. (laughs) So many paddlers in one place. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's, it's awesome. And, uh, just a lot of excitement goes into that open night the whole weekend. So we're very, very excited to be back and we're so glad you'll be there too, Chelsea, this year. All right. Well, let's, uh, move into the second part of today's episode. As I said at the top of our intros here, Jeff Nemitz is a guy we owe a lot of thanks to for not only the Gunflint Mail Run and the live broadcast we did uh, to start Season 3, but also he's just the engineer at the radio station. This These microphones that we're talking into right now, Chelsea, Jeff hooked everything up here, right? So we owe it all uh, the sound to Jeff. And he also designed this polk sled that you and I and Matthew and uh, Rachel, your sister Whitney, and just our team that was out recording the podcast for Jay, uh, Jay White and her Exploring the North Shore podcast, uh, we had this polk sled that was pulling some of our gear. I think, you know, the chairs, the Vexlar, all of the, some of the equipment and stuff. And Jeff designed a polk sled from scratch, homemade. I wanted to hear the details of how he did it because, honestly, I don't know. He just sort of showed up here at the station one day and said, here, this will work better for your purposes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what an awesome gift. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. So uh, with that in mind, uh, let's jump into my conversation with Jeff Nemitz about how to build a polk sled for the Boundary Waters. All right, we're out here in the Boundary Waters. It's February. Nice day, all things considered. I'm out here with Jeff Nemitz, longtime Cook County resident. Lives near the Gunflint Trail. Jeff, uh, great to be out here fishing with you today. It's awesome to be fishing with you, Joe. It's always a pleasure. Well, we've got a few lake trout on the ice already. Uh, one very nice one. I think anybody would be happy to catch that fish. Mm-hmm. And then another one that'll complement a, a meal that you're planning to have later back at home. But uh, we're out here today to talk about polk sleds. And uh, I just want to note to our listeners here that we've got a couple tip-ups uh, in the in the water right now, and should one of those go up, the interview will go on. So uh, just as a forewarned listener, and it slowed down a little bit, so don't be too disappointed if we don't catch anything here while we're recording. But let's talk about polk sleds, Jeff. In fact, I'm looking out of our little uh, windbreak ice shelter that we've got set up here, and this is a polk sled that you built that I pulled out here today. You uh, turned my 
fishing sled that I bought, a, you know, Cabela's type sled. I mean, you can pick it up at any outdoor shop or probably even a, you know, big retail store probably has something like this. It's a very basic fishing, ice fishing sled. I don't know what, maybe four feet long and mm -hmm. uh, a foot deep, 10 inches maybe deep. Yep. Um, and it had a rope on it. That's kind of the That's how they come is just a rope that you can either pull behind you with your arms or you could maybe loop it or put it up over your shoulders and down on your waist so you're kind of inside of it pulling it. Mm -hmm. But there are, there are challenges to that, Jeff. So you took it upon yourself to uh, build a polk sled. And for our understanding, that means you put, you know, it's got braces now, rods that come off of it or poles. A mm -hmm. couple of poles. And uh, tell me a little bit about how you how you put this together, Jeff. Well, I actually uh, did quite a bit of research on the web, uh, watching videos. There's there's quite a variety of ways to do it these days, uh, and there's actually ones that you can buy direct from a company that builds some really high quality ones. Uh, but uh, I wasn't looking to spend a whole lot of money, and uh, and I wanted to make a couple of sets, one for me and and. Uh, and one for Joel for his sled and uh, so what we came up with uh, was uh, just a couple of pieces of uh, half inch PVC conduit uh, about six six foot long uh, poles that are hollow in the middle mm -hmm. and uh, the particular uh, device that I used for attaching uh, to the sled is basically just a loop of rope that that runs through the middle of the pole and uh, you just drill a couple of holes on your sled a couple of half inch holes and the end of that rope loop just loops down through one hole back up through another hole and one of those on each side and then you just use a strap to kind of tie those two loops together uh, tighten it up and uh, that way it's nice and tight to the sled and then uh, on so, the other, so, so that's how you get the the poles to connect to the sled. Mm -hmm. And how do you get the rope to stay through the pole without just slipping right out? Well, when you detach it, you you just want to uh, loop your 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 snap through it when you're just uh, when you're not using them, just so they don't pull through. Okay. They could they could pull through. They're they're just a little tedious to thread them back through there if you need to do that. Yeah. And what and what do you say those poles are made of? What's that That's, material? Uh, I used PVC conduit. You can use uh, uh, well, this is actually electrical conduit, but you can use PVC pipe. Yeah. Uh, I think the electrical stuff is a little tougher. I use Schedule Forty. It also which is a little thicker than Schedule Eighty. And how long are these poles? Jeff? They're about six foot each. It depends on how tall you are and what you're using to uh, haul them with. If, if you're using snowshoes, uh, they don't need to be as long. But if you're using skis, it's nice to have them uh, a little bit longer. So between five and six feet is uh, a pretty good length on them. Okay, and that, so that's connected to the sled now. You've described that. But how about to you, to your body and, uh, you know, around your hips or wherever you want them? How do you... Put that together well i i looked online and uh looked for uh different types of waist belts i mean just a, a simple belt would work if you if you have a way to fashion uh some kind of attaching device to the belt but i actually found a couple of work belts that are designed for uh carpenters or electricians so that you can hang t little tool pouches on it a lot of other ones I've seen, and, and uh, one that I designed many years ago just had a, uh, a plastic buckle snap. But, uh, you know, why, when you're... Why'd you want to get away from that on this? Well, uh, you know, plastic and uh, can break, you know, if you're not careful. And the cold that we get in the boundary yeah, waters. Yeah, yep. If you're out in the woods in the winter and... Uh, you just if that broke it would be a problem then you'd probably have to tie a knot or something do do some uh, rig it up to get home yeah rig it up to get home so yeah. i figured you know a good belt that's got uh, uh steel steel clasp and stuff uh would be better and it, it wasn't that much more so okay i went with that design and then uh and how, the, do, how do the 
poles connect to this belt then? Well, on the uh, on the uh, waist belt end of the pole, uh, basically just ran a rope loop through uh, a metal ring, about an inch and a half metal ring, which you can buy at any hardware store. And then on the belt itself, I had somebody sew a little uh, a little loop onto the belt on both sides. And uh, basically, you just put the ring up to that little loop and then slip a D-ring, uh, a latching D-ring through that. And uh, so the whole thing can come apart and store easily. But it's also a pretty solid. You want, a, you want a good solid connection to the belt if you can. A lot of people just hang a carabiner on there and then they kind of flop around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a big deal if you're on the flat or if you're going uphill, but when you go downhill, that's when that's when the polk poles really come in handy because you don't want the sled to overrun you and uh, cause problems. Yeah, and anybody that's you know a regular listener of our podcast or who who isn't as familiar, I would reference you to go listen to episode two, one of the earliest episode two episodes of uh, the pot. WTIP Boundary podcast where this exact scenario that you're describing of the sled catching up to you on the downhill, that happened to me on a our Matthew and I's trip to Winchell Lake on the first portage, second portage actually of the trip where the sled came barreling, we were on skis and, and uh, you know not just kind of getting accustomed to the feel of these toboggans that we had uh, been provided and, and the sled caught up to me instantly and without time for me to prepare and it clipped me out at the knees and I went airborne with skis on and it you know it's kind of comical certainly now because I'm okay but it was a dangerous situation Mm -hmm. actually at the time my ski pole got bent in half that easily could have been my leg and that was a learning experience for me but now the alternative has been we walk the sled down in front of us and that's kind of you know slow, and it, it can veer off of the trail and go into the thick snow, and it, yeah. you know there's there, it's not a great way to go about business, really. So, so we've uh, so that was the one of the primary reasons and benefits is the polk is that you don't have to ever become unattached from it on the whole walk out here where we are now in the boundary waters we never unclipped from the moment we were at the vehicle and these are completely homemade jeff which i think is great yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) and you picked up a lot of the supplies in town would you say Yep, just at the local hardware store um you know i I did quite a few hours of research on uh ways ways to, to different ways to do it and uh this just happens to be the the simplest and uh, and uh, cheapest way to go. There's much there's much more complicated and and sturdier ways to go, which I may build uh, some new ones that are a little more solid. And uh, um, but for now, this is this is working for us. And we're hauling a reasonable amount of gear. I mean, we have a small ice fishing shack. We've got Vexlars. We've got a heater. We've got. Uh, an auger, all our fishing gear, maybe, I don't know, 25, 30 pounds worth of stuff. Yeah, and you've hauled uh, even more stuff than that earlier. Huh? Yeah, earlier in the season, we, we had, uh, when we were up here for the Gunflint Mail Run, and in just the last episode, actually, January episode, I had the house, or the, the sled weighed down substantially more than today. So, it, so you've built something that's sturdy. And it feels sturdy as you're pulling it, especially on the uphill, Jeff, when you've got 40 pounds plus behind you, 50 maybe. That's putting some strain on this rope. So is the pressure actually going through the poles, or is it all on that rope? It's all on the rope. It's all on the rope. The poles just kind of keep the rope straight, basically, and uh, uh, especially on the downhills. But the, the rope is basically taking all the weight. Wow, and so was with that in mind. Did you make sure to purchase something that can take that kind of pressure, or did that factor into the rope that you bought? Well, what I used was uh, it's some uh, uh, woven rope, uh, a flat woven rope that they they actually used 
for pulling fiber through uh, fiber conduit when they when they built out fiber in the county here, mm-hmm. Cook County. Fiber like broadband yep. internet. Yep, and there was tons of it left over. So I I went did a little dumpster diving and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's just really strong stuff and it's it's relatively thin but it's it's super strong and uh, I, ha- I have a gob of it at home so I thought well I'll use this stuff you know but you could certainly use uh, some kind of thin uh, climbing rope or uh, you know eighth inch or three sixteenth inch rope that's designed you know that has uh, can take a good load on mm-hmm. it that would work fine too even just like some paracord that you got you know for using or is that paracord might be a little bit thin I mean if you got the good stuff it, it would work it would probably work but uh yeah, we actually, uh, I used a single piece and made a, a, a loop and uh, had somebody sew the loop ends together. So it's basically a loop going through the, through the conduit. Um, but you could, you, could, uh, you could tie some kind of a knot if you use some small diameter round rope, you know, instead yeah. of the flat stuff that I used. Okay. All right. Well, I feel I've put it to the test. I mean, I've hold. I, as you said, taking out some heavy loads already now this year, also in some heavy, deep snow breaking trail. Uh, so I feel like this is very sturdy. I'm I'm confident that it's a good idea and that it works. And I can tell you, after years of pulling the sled, this exact same sled that I have taken out today on this Polk model, to, you know, years of pulling it with just the rope. Either, as I said, dragging it with my arms, my hands on behind me, you know, pulling it with my shoulders where that's where the weight is, or a rope kind of digging into my hip as I'm going, you know, across the ice and up, up, and then having to walk the dog kind of method down the hill. This is far and away better. It's a game changer. It's a game changer. Yes, it is. And I don't have to stop and, and deal with the hassle of the rope. So, Jeff, what's an approximate cost of supplies to make this polk sled just a ballpark estimate for anybody that's wondering about building their own um i think it was about 50 bucks for each set that i built yeah and the waist belt was probably 30 around 30 dollars and another 20 dollars worth of uh, other hardware supplies so the belt is probably the most expensive part of it the rest is just scrap material or whatever you can put together yeah yeah all right and it seemed to be i mean you're the engineer for the radio station where the podcast is made so you're you know a mechanically sound individual probably more than than most but could the average person put something like this together oh yeah oh definitely definitely and and any of the videos that you watched that you would point people to or you just typed into google or youtube homemade polk sled did any of them stand out or you it sounded like you did a combination of them well uh, i kind of did i took i took a few ideas from a couple different uh different videos and uh one little addition i did on these was i put a little rubber hose uh on the end of uh where it attaches to the sled just to give it a little flexibility Right there, maybe a little six-inch piece of hose that, that slipped over the, the conduit nice and tight. It stays on there good and snug. The only downside to this setup is is uh, the rope that I use, that flat pulling rope. Uh, if you get it too close to a fire or a heater, it might just melt it right off. Okay. So. Keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah. It might be better just to use uh, a little bit of, I think the, the small diameter climbing rope uh, would be uh, uh, a little safer as far as uh, being protected from heat on, that, on, on the ends of it. Okay, and as you said, you built ours to accommodate for skiing if we came out with hawk skis or backcountry skis or just even, you know, your cross-country skis when the conditions... Uh, accommodate as you did today as a matter of fact jeff you skied out here i did and i snowshoed out but i think for what they are it's it's been a significant uh you know amount of strain taken off of me to get out here i feel like i can just really get some momentum and go 
instead of just this rope method, which in hindsight was just not very effective. Yeah. Well, that's what most people use. They use a rope. But, uh, boy, once you try it, uh, once you try it with the uh, a belt and some poles, uh, it's, it's just so much nicer. And plus it frees up your hands to use poles. If you got some hills to climb, mm-hmm. uh, which is really makes a big difference, yes, it uh, does. Just to have uh, have some poles for helping you up the hill. Then you're doing uh, you're you know using uh, your arms in addition to your legs to climb up those hills and up and over those portages. Yep, and just a little more sturdy going across the ice. If you hit some slush or just for whatever, if it's you know slick, whatever you need, you kind of now have that extra brace for your legs almost. And so, all right, Jeff, I I think it's great what you've done here with the polk sleds. It's been awesome to pull this in here into the Boundary Waters. I I think it's, as I said now, it's February 2020, and I've already been in. This is my fifth trip in now, I think, to the Boundary Waters already this year and using the polk sled, and it's it's quick and easy to set up. We've done it in the dark, as we did today, so you don't, you know, it's very easy to assemble when you get to the parking lot and it's easy to store back at home in the shed it's a it's a perfect perfect model for our purposes and uh we'll put the photo up you know here the photo with the uh with the podcast episode this time is of jeff with the polk sled so somebody can reference that or else uh, shoot me an email at bwcapodcast at gmail.com and i can give you you know, probably even a materials list or something, Jeff. I'm sure we could put that together pretty quickly if somebody wanted to know exactly what it is uh, that we use to that you use to build the sled. We could make a a short, easy materials list. Sure, we could do that. And uh, meanwhile, we didn't get a fish here during our our recording, but as we said, we got a couple on the ice already. It's been a great day out in the Boundary Waters, and uh, look forward to cruising back home with the Polk sled. Nice and easy. So we're out here with Jeff Nimitz. Jeff, thanks first and foremost for building that polk sled. It's been awesome. And uh, thanks for being here on the podcast today. Wait, we got a fish, Jeff. I'm not kidding. (laughs) I'll take the microphone, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a fish. Stay with us. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Sweet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. See you later. A quick editor's note. Yes, we actually did catch a fish there. All right, Chelsea, full episode. There's uh, the start. It feels like this is episode one, the start of season three, even though, of course, last month's live broadcast up at the mail run at uh, Trail Center. special, like, start. Way to go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. So uh, we're rolling along now. This is episode 26 of the Boundary Waters podcast, and we want to thank our sponsors today, Ben Paddle Brewing in Duluth. They've been uh, a supporter of the podcast since season one. Really uh, thankful for their support, as well as Tuscarora Lodge and Canoe Outfitters uh, supporting uh, the seasons as well, and our travel to Canoe Copia and this episode specifically today. And uh, Canoe Copia itself uh, has just always been so supportive of the podcast. So thanks to all of our sponsors. Thanks to Scott and Emily Burdett. Uh, we heard about the port- Portage and Quetico, that epic journey, Matthew Baxley. Uh, narrating that story for us today. And, of course, Mr. Jeff Nimitz uh, begrudgingly <laughs> makes his appearance on the podcast. So, Thanks, Jeff. It's awesome to have an opportunity to thank you for what you do, and thank you to everybody who sponsored this episode and Mr. Matthew Baxley. And thank you to you, Joe, for all the work you do. Hey, Chelsea, this is a team thing, totally, and we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad you'll be with us in Canoe Copia. In fact, uh, maybe we should just jump in our vehicle and Let's go to Madison right now. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I just sing when I paddle canoe. Feeling not thinking if the strokes are true. We're gonna get through to the other side. Out in the night, the waves beat the shore. You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar. Roll me, rock me in my dreams. You can roll me, rock me. I like to 
to sing, I love to dance I play the fool if I got the chance All around the campfire light All around the campfire light All around, all around, all around The campfire light Thank you.